Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. There are roughly two and a half million farm workers in the United States. They are the essential workers who feed America. The literary magazine, The Common, has collected works from the farm worker community. Yvette Benavides is the host and producer of the TPR podcast Book Public, and in her latest episode, she talks to the writers featured in The Common. The Common is a literary organization whose mission is to deepen our individual and collective sense of place. Based at Amherst College, their aim is to serve as a vibrant common space for the global exchange of ideas and experiences. They publish works that embody particular times and places, literature and art powerful enough to reach from there to here and feature new and underrepresented voices from around the world. With these goals in mind, the latest issue of The Common includes a portfolio of art and writing from the farm worker community. I spoke to contributors, poets, writers, and editors about their efforts to bring the art and writings of the farm worker community from the fields to the pages of this special portfolio in the latest issue of The Common. Jennifer Acker is founder and editor in chief of The Common. She also translated a story titled Jacinta Murrieta by the writer. Julio Puente Garcia. Here's our conversation. When we stop to think about farm work, we can't help but realize how difficult it is. And we think of the backbreaking labor and the difficult you know, environmental conditions, the hot sun, the cold weather, the working, working in the rain, all of those things. But what the contributors have really brought to the portfolio is showing us the full range of what it means to be a farm worker in terms of closeness to family and the celebration of culture and the work of unionizing or um, or you know banding together with uh, with other workers and the, the intimacy of that work so I think that um, a lot of the a lot of the pieces in the portfolio speak to those emotional components which are which are really beautiful and of course exist right alongside the the difficulty of the work. The work is so wide-ranging, so many voices and so many perspectives and genres also. And you also translated a story called Jacinta Murrieta by Julio Puente Garcia. I was thinking about something that Kate Briggs wrote in her book about translation, the book This Little Art. She says that translation is the most selfless art and that we need translations urgently because it's through translation that we reach the literatures written in the languages that we don't or can't read from places where we don't or can't live. And she reminds us that the English-speaking world is not the world. It doesn't stand in for and it's not equal to the world. So translation, I know, is very important to you. Um, I find it increasingly important in our world I wonder if you can talk about the place of translation in in this portfolio, not just with your work with the common more generally, but with this particular portfolio and the work that you did with the story by Julio Puente Garcia. 
Well, I absolutely love Julio's story, and it was such a pleasure to work on it. His writing is so full of of energy and imagination and is rooted in this very specific place of the Central Valley uh, where he grew up and, and spent a lot of time. So he's really the, the intimacy of his familiarity with the place really comes through. And so it was an absolute pleasure to work with his words and to think about them so carefully and to render them into English because I just knew this story was going to be such a crucial part of the portfolio. It, it, it showcases an entirely different aspect of farm work and of this place in California and of our moment in, in history. That was Jennifer Acker, editor-in-chief of The Common. She translated Jacinta Murrieta, a story by Julio Puente Garcia, in the latest issue of The Common. Gabriela Spears Rico. Poetry on Borrowed Time. I've always written my poems on borrowed paper and borrowed time. In the camps, as a child, journaling by the fire, by whatever light I could find. What do you want for your birthday? My mother asked, knowing she didn't have a dime. Notebooks, ama, paper and a pen so I could steal the minutes from the clock at the end of the workday to write to her in verses how my day went in a borrowed country with borrowed ink on borrowed paper with borrowed time. Farm worker living is communal, todos en joda. Everybody commits to forging space for everybody to stay alive. Counting the minutes, making the minutes count, moving, all the time. We worked together, cooked together, ate together, slept together. My siblings' limbs and toasty bodies, always extensions of mine. There is beauty in communal living, yet there wasn't space for me to be with me. As a child, you are expected to contribute. Nobody sits idle here. Yet I would sneak away to compose verses on the comforting shelter of my amas bandana, the deceptive strength of the apple trees my theos picked clean, the geometric shapes and otherworldly taste of strawberries, the slimy gunk that became jam when fruit rotted into caneria at the summer's halt. Writing was the way I made, I made time be mine. My grandfather knew the needs of every crop and every season, but now how, not how to string words together on paper to defend himself when patrones stole his bracero wages and encomiendas on haciendas in the fields, the right to read was denied. But there I was, a seven-year-old poet defying poverty. When my chola friends dared me to steal, I shoplifted a journal with a lock my mother threatened to burn my hands. I cried and begged. I only wanted to write in a space where nobody could open the pages. Ama, punish me, take my food, deny me water, make me sleep away from the warmth of our family, but don't burn my hands because then I'll never write again. I was always an untrained tongue, an uninsured grad student, an unrecognized voice. I stole to write, I carved out time with borrowed ink, 
on borrowed paper with borrowed time. I'm still the clandestine poet, a working mother who stays up past bedtime, but I don't want to be a thieving wordsmith anymore. As long as my poetry is a community's documentation, an archival and historical declaration, a wholly sanctified act of self-preservation, I no longer want to be the one writing on borrowed paper with borrowed ink. On the margins, illegally inscribing my community's humanity, struggling to be legible, seen in a borrowed country. That was Gabriela Spears Rico with her poem, Poetry on Borrowed Time. Miguel M. Morales is a contributor to this special portfolio of farmworker writing in the latest issue of The Common. Here's our conversation. One of the things I talk about all, all the time is that farm work is hard and it's difficult and it's, it just drains you of all your energy and it's un- unsustainable for a person to put out that much energy all the time. It's just, it'll, you know, deplete you. But farm work also gives back. It teaches you there's gifts from the field. It teaches you patience and it teaches you um, how to deal with solitude and persistence and a, and a work ethic that you will never ever learned otherwise. When you're there in the hot summer sun and it's like 114 and your arms are covered and your leg, you know, you're like covered so you don't get burned by the sun. You learn how to deal with heat and with difficult situations. And you can't like freak out because then everybody else will start panicking around you that, you know, it's too hot. So you've just got to be persistent and pace yourself. You can't, you know, use all your energy at the beginning of the day. You can't save it till the end of the day because then, you know, you work slow. So it has to be consistent pace and so that's what you kind of learn when difficult times come along it's like okay i'm not gonna freak out i'll freak out for like a minute <laughs> but can let me tackle how we're gonna do this and so you you pull on your farm worker training and say okay the field is this big and we have this many people to accomplish this task what how are we gonna what's our game plan and uh and that's just one of the things farm work gives you is a strategic mind and patience and a work ethic and just learning how to balance your energy and that that feeds directly into poetry, into storytelling as well, because you've got to be able to engage an audience, not just at the beginning or not just at the end, but throughout. You have to like pace them and bring them with you and make sure they understand. Yeah, so I think it, feed, it, it works into storytelling marvelously. What do you think is the place of the poet in shining a light on marginalized people or shining a light on particular events that occur or situations that afflict specifically marginalized people, this seems like something that is very important to you. I think as farm workers and as just oppressed people, we know how to navigate our lives to get through each day and maybe each couple of days or maybe the next week or the next month. But we have to like learn how to manage our lives in ways that we can just sustain ourselves and protect the people we love and continue that path. But then there's things that happen that can derail you or there's a car accident or somebody gets hurt or there's just all kinds of things, immigration, all kinds of things can just like disrupt your day and your life and your year. And so you just have to learn to, you know, I need to be able to deal with that issue and and reassure other people that it's going to be okay, that we'll find a way because that's what we do as Latino people. We just like, okay, we will find a way. We all band together and we're like, we're just going to figure this out. And so I think that's kind of what I, I do with my writing because I just want to, when I write, my first audience is always farm workers and specifically farm worker youth because I just need to like talk to the person that I was 
because I know how I felt when I was a kid, but there's other kids out there who feel the same way. They kind of feel trapped. They're like, what do I do? I love my parents, but I hate my parents because we're in this situation that, but they express the anger to the people they love the most because that's the most safest place to, you know, let your anger go. And that's to your family. And so you got to learn how to like, there's going to be times we all flare up, but we do it because we're safe. We, we hold each other safe. So that's what I think is really important about this work. And I think the thing, you know, the, the themes about mar- marginalized people, it's just, we have to protect each other, whether you're, you're it's, it's the queer community or the trans community or, or Latinos or undocumented or farm workers, like it's all just the intersexual community that I belong to. I just always have to think I need to make a connection. I need to bring all these people together so that they know we're all in this struggle and that we all, you know, there's no use in, in fighting because there's always somebody other in our family. Like my, my, my belief is that no, whatever you don't like, it's going to end up in your family. So you just better, <laughs> you just better <laughs> learn to embrace it, you know, yeah. because those are going to be the people that you love. And then the, 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 the animosity that you felt towards this other, this other people they're going to become your grandchildren or your, your spouse or your son or your daughter. And then like, you don't want people talking bad or treating bad, treating them badly. So don't do it yourself. Right. Don't do that. So yeah. So the writing projects I try and take on speak to marginalized people, uh, specifically anthologies, because I don't want it just to be my voice. Here's the thing I'm telling. I want it. I want my voice to be added to a bunch of other voices because diversity in voice always just adds layers to, to things that, not not even one person could say we're all saying it together, and so I, I just am fascinated by all the pieces that are in the in this in this you know portfolio and all the other projects that I've worked on. I'm just blown away by how new and emerging writers, people who have never written before, have some of the most amazing stories to tell. It's it's beautiful. That was Miguel M. Morales, an editor for the portfolio of farmworker writing in the latest issue of The Common. Hi, um, my name is Gabriela Lemons, and I will be reading um, one of my poems in the collection. Uh, It's entitled Flying. Our truck gathers speed as we approach the hills of El Valle. And for a few seconds, I am in flight. We accelerate, embark the horizon's next hill. We break, drive past Algodon, pull to the side of the road, Terremotos on perfectly spaced rows. I follow. My father plucks a bowl, exposes white fibers in my palm. Where clothes comes from, he says. Fertile is my father's land. That was Gabriela Ibarra Lemons. Nora Rodriguez Camagna grew up in the California migrant labor camps, Texas, and Mexico, and graduated from the University of California, Berkeley. Her essay, Boysenberry Girls, appears in the portfolio of art and writings from the farmworker community in the latest issue of The Common. Here's our conversation. Your essay takes place in 1978 in Central Valley, California. Your words evoke that time of, like, tiger beat cover idols and... (laughs) (laughs) you know, coveting polo shirts and Connie clogs and like these very specific fashion items. There was another threesome, I'll tell you this, 
of sisters in Laredo, Texas around 1978 wanting those same things. That's me and my sisters. Oh, <laughs> so wow. It was so <laughs> funny. completely resonant. So I love that these specific details from your life, they're so specific, but then they're so resonant. 1978 was a, a time of wanting and peer pressure and figuring out our identity for somebody, somebody who's a 12-year-old girl. And then that wanting becomes part of the motivation for you and your sisters to join your mother in the fields. I want to hear from you about this, about this motivation, that particular crop, that particular year, and working with picking the boys and berries. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You know, in the essay, I address the fact that we became Americanized fairly quickly, you know, once we stopped going back and forth to Mexico. And, you know, yeah, you know, middle school kids, I have three sons, you know, and I, and I, and I actually teach it, I'm teaching it in middle school right now. And middle school kids, you know, reaching that age, you just want to fit in with everyone. You know, you're, you want to, you know, you just really notice what everyone else is wearing, how they're acting, and you want to um, fit in with them, be part of it, be part of the fabric of the school, of your community. And um, I think that's why, yeah, we wanted, we wanted, you know, all of those things so much. And, but, you know, our parents, yeah, the, you know, they had moved up to the middle class, but they still didn't have a lot of spending money. And, you know, there was this tension then because we thought, uh, you know, I guess we thought maybe they weren't prioritizing their money, right? <laughs> we thought, you know, are they, are they just saying they can't afford it or are they just uh, don't want us to have these things because they think they're frivolous? And I think, you know, I think that at some point, our mom got, you know, and your parents also sometimes they'd be, or at least my parents didn't want to admit that maybe they couldn't afford the things that we wanted yeah. because then maybe they thought they were letting us down. Yeah. So I think that, I think that comes into play too. And, you know, I do remember when my mom decided, okay, you want those things, you know, you can come work in the fields then. And, you know, as I was been thinking about this essay and us being, you know, these, I guess, teen, I guess for teenage preteen girls, it never occurred occurred to us to say no. Like when she decided we were going to go to the fields, we were going. You know, there, there was no choice. We never would have defied <laughs> um, our parents. So it's it's pretty funny. But yeah, you know, and then, you know, the motivation was there. To, we really wanted, you know, those clothes. We wanted to be like everyone else. Or we thought everyone else was like that. You know, there's probably a few people who could afford those things. But, you know, that's sort of what you gravitate towards sometimes. You know, you see, you know, yeah. the people who wear the certain you know, the the more stylish stuff at the time, you know, because I'm sure everyone wasn't wearing all of that stuff, but yeah. <laughs> maybe we thought so, you know what I mean? But I do know what you mean. I, but I remember that. I remember the Famillari shoes, you know, and the brand name blue jeans, you know, everybody wanted to wear Sergio Valenti, you oh, know, so and we all funny. pronounced it that way too. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's so true. I remember the Chemin de Furs and the Dittos. I don't know. And then, you know, when we did get them, we just felt so cool. I don't know. We felt so it gives you something. It gives you some kind of oomph. So, um, you know, we we did appreciate when we did get to wear them because, you know, it, it's not like we when we could wear them, we decided, oh, we don't need them. No, we, we liked it. You know, we liked going oh, around. In but them. I love the comment. Was it from your mother who said th the polo shirts were not particularly flattering to, you know, to the female form? <laughs> so. Right. Why do you want to wear those? Yeah. Camisetas de oomph. Camisetas de oomph. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. Um, you know, when I was 
talking um, with Julian and Miguel and Emily at the comment about, you know, just all of our lives. And, you know, I think that comment brings back up about the tube tops, like that our parents have to wear them. And, you know, my mom, um, you know, growing up, you know, she ended up having six kids, couldn't drive, very patriarchal society. So she was, you know, in her place. But she was this woman who was full of life. And the only way she could exert some power was through her beauty. So early on, my mom really like, uh, while other people's parents were telling them you can't wear makeup, our mom was telling us to put on makeup. Wow. Wow. Um, And I think because she thought, you know, the only she I think she felt that the only power she had in her relationship was her beauty. And I think she thought that's maybe that's all we were going to be able to have. I see. That's so interesting to me. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yes. But she was, we learned a lot about your parents in this essay and the sacrifices that they were able to make to become American citizens, to give up so much, and to make a lovely home. Lovely homes, plural. I mean, it was like uh, your dad had such a clear plan, perhaps, to make sure that he was able to have a little bit of, of progress in that way from working in the fields to working in the cannery and et cetera. And then the, the idea that he was never idle is another thing that stays with me after reading your essay. Your parents were never idle. My parents to this day still are not idle. They are. My dad at some point was and working at the cannery and the fields on the same day. I mean, he just, he was so driven to provide a life for us. If he couldn't provide the life in Mexico, which he wanted to originally, he wanted to provide a life really of, I, and I, I think I use the word dignity in there. Yes. And that's really when I think about my dad and my parents, they wanted us to grow up with a sense of dignity that we could become more uh, through hard work and through family. And uh, I think that, I think I'm hoping that comes out in the essay my grandmother, yeah, she, all the stories she would tell us in our backyard. I think at some point, you know, teenagers, you, when your parents tell you things, you don't want to believe them, or maybe your parents tell you so many things to do that you don't want to sometimes listen to all their advice. But when you, with grandparents, I think it's different. And so my grandmother, you know, she could, it, it wasn't over, but it was through her storytelling that she, I think she saw that we were pulling away from our parents and the rest of our family, you know, that our Spanish was um, fading and that our connection to Mexico was too, I think she just thought it was so important for us to remember the lives, um, these, you know, beautiful lives my parents had at some point in Mexico before the economy, the vessel collapsed, I think in 76. And um, the, the I think there was a local um, electric company where my grandfather had managed it, it closed down, they diverted this, you know, all these economic things happened at the same time in their part of Mexico, they just couldn't stay there anymore. And, um, and they just needed a, my parents, some some of my family stayed longer oh, uh, in Mexico, still trying to make it work. But my mom actually is the one who really pushed my dad to stay here, because she thought women um, had more opportunity in the United States. Well, and speaking of that, I know you went on to go to college, you were the first in your family, right, to graduate from yes. college? Yes. That must have meant so much to your parents and to your your family and, and to you. I, I won't say more about the essay. I want everybody to read this issue of The Common. It's a, it's a gorgeous, poignant, powerful story that I want everybody to seek out and read. But for, just for right now, can you tell me what you learned in those years of being a, a field worker that connects you to 
being a writer, working as a teacher of writing, even. Mm-hmm. As a writer, you think a lot about setting, you know, the, where, where you set people and how they react to that setting. And I feel like because we, you know, we did grow up in the migrant camps and I do was aware that my parents and my family were going off into the fields while we were in the schools. But when we did move to an elementary school, we moved to, um, you know, uh, that one, one of our, um, the first house my dad bought for $5,000, if you can believe it or not, mm-hmm. um, in, in our little farm town back then. And then, you know, going just now becoming more Americanized, being in the schools, uh, we began to lose some. We were we 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 became in a very Americanized setting to go back to the fields. So we were certain kind of people or kids, I guess you could say. But going back to the fields now, we have a whole different setting where it's hot and it's so hard, and you can't control your own time. You know, you can't decide when you're going to have lunch. You have to wait for that break, it really makes you look into yourself and say, wow, I I can do this, but it doesn't feel good mm-hmm. to not be able to control when I can do something or, or technically get one pace to work and how little amount of money you're getting from the work that, you know, you are putting in. And then to be around the other, the other workers there, you know, in particular, that moment when La Migra comes, and to see these kids who were just like us, I mean, like middle school kids that I see, but all, all for a piece of paper, they're now running in fear, like, you know, uh, fugitives, which they shouldn't have had to do. Yeah. And, it, you know, as, as a young kid, seeing that and witnessing it, I think it gives you this um, belief as you get older. And I guess to me as a writer to really appreciate that I don't live in fear. And that I can try anything. And when I write, I can create the worlds I want to write. And they'll be my worlds. And, you know, it's it's up to me to write them. No one else can control that part of my life. What do your parents think about your writing life? Oh, you know, it's interesting. They they don't know a lot about it. And since this is, you know, I, I can't wait. I'm going to translate this to Spanish for them, wow. Boys and Berry Girls, because I want them to read it. You know, my parents, they weren't big readers. So sometimes they think, okay, what is she doing? They've always known that about me. I was really the only one in my family who loved to read. And they had a hard time understanding. And to be honest with you, I had a hard time when I went away to college. They didn't understand to them, being successful successful meant, you know, working two or three jobs, work, work, work. And, and I would tell them, I want to, I mean, to me, it wasn't about making money with a job. To me, it was about, I wanted to learn about the world. And I think, you know, I think, I think now that they know me more and they see what I've been doing, um, they, they do, pre- they, now, now they get it so many years <laughs> later. <laughs> well, I love this idea that you, that you can learn about the world when you go to school, but I feel like these students that you that you teach now, these students that you work with now, that part of their learning about the world is to be able to read an essay like Boys and Berry Girls. And that's learning about the world, too. Yeah, I think so, too. Thank you. Nora Rodriguez-Camagna is the author of the essay Boys and Berry Girls, found in the latest issue of The Common. Hi, this is Jose Antonio Rodriguez. My poem is called Immense, and it's inspired by... um, my relationship to my father, who was a farm worker, um, he had his own very, uh, I guess it's called subsistence farming in, in Mexico. And then when we came over, he just, he worked for, for corporate farms. And I had a little bit of experience with migrant working uh, as migrant worker as when I was a very young child, um, mostly witnessing my 
my parents and my older siblings work. And anyway, here's the poem. The wish is always that we'd walk in, give each other bear hugs, tight and unencumbered, nothing of my body shameful, that he'd cradle my face in his palms and smile wide in awe of who I've become, that I'd go to him twice a year to help me unknot something of my heart when it broke. But my father never could be that, his Spanish and my English, his love of tractors, my love of books, his big family, my non-existent one. Though, when I can't help it, I must accept that the divide was much larger, immense, if all we could ever speak were cars and weather. I buried him years ago in a grave I've yet to visit, though in my dreams I walk to it, in silence, undress, curl in the grass, the headstone my pillow, and ask him how to extinguish this wish that won't die. That was José Antonio Rodríguez reading his poem, Immense. That was Yvette Benavides, host and producer of the TPR Book Public podcast, which focused on the latest issue of The Common and writings from the farm worker community. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. I'm David Martin Davies. Thank you for listening. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.